0: You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit CAC.org.
1: At some point, healing itself is indebted to stability. But when the world withdraws its endorsement of stability, we have to become with the world or to paraphrase Chinua Achebe um, responding to Archimedes you know who says give me a place to stand and I shall move the world and Chinua Achebe responds but there is no place to stand we are off the world and we must move with it post activism is an invitation to movement to exile to making sanctuary to, to framing new therapeutic alliances with
2: the world that is bigger than the individual or our images of victory This podcast explores the mystery of relatedness as an organizing principle of the universe and of our lives.
3: We're trying to catch a glimpse of connections beyond color, continent, country, or kinship. And we're going to do this through science, mysticism, spirituality, and the creative arts. I'm Donnie Bryant. I'm Barbara Holmes. And this is The Cosmic We.
2: Today we have with us Dr. Bio Komalafe. Bio has a gift for helping us to see with new eyes and in new ways. He asks reality-bending questions. Dr. Komalafe is a professor, speaker, a lecturer, a renegade academic, and is globally recognized for his poetic, unconventional, and counterintuitive take on global crisis, civil action, and social change. He is the author, of these wilds beyond our fences, and we will tell our own story. He's joining us today from India, where he lives with his wife and children. And Dr. Barbara and I couldn't be happier about sharing him with our community. Dr. Komalafe, welcome. Thank you so much for having
3: me. You know, um, when Cliff first introduced me to your work, I was astonished by the clarity and truth telling. It was sort of like, um, my experience of first encountering Toni Morrison. Each sentence was so packed and took me places. And I just wondered, um, is there any of your urban background that influences that mythopoetic and narrative way in which you engage the world? You
1: know, it's really difficult any time I encounter that question. Um, it's just like the fish that has always lived its life in water, uh, describing the phenomenon of wetness, right? Um, it's it's almost, um, it's the only world I've ever known. This idea of elders, this idea of proverbs, this idea that one does not speak straightforwardly, right? Uh, which is a very powerful trope where I come from in Nigeria, that wisdom comes out from the corners of one's mouth, right? Or that to speak, you know, one, the Yoruba people have a proverb that proverbs are the horse or are the horses of words, right? That if you want to get someplace really fast, you use proverbs. Um, So there's a zigzagging world that, that I was born into that insight and comprehension and wisdom and its articulation and eloquence were premised upon um, zigzagging through the world and a deep sense of poetry, right? And this is what informs, speaking about Toni Morrison, one of her friends was Wale Shoenka, right? This is what- Uh um, Yes. Wale Shoinka and Chinua Achebe and- so that's the world I was born in, and I I, I now re- fully appreciate it as a gift.
3: Yeah, and it's, it's a powerful world because uh, my family comes from the Gullah country here in the United States, and we've done our DNA and traced on so my mother's side's back to Cameroon. And um, in the Gullah tradition, we always grow up knowing that life is not truncated between your birthday and your death date that there is a continuum in the elders come back. They come back in dreams. And so my whole journey in life has been about interacting with those who are here in this world and those who are not. And it's a very powerful background to have. I don't know how you make it in the world when you don't have that. This is the,
1: dare I say, sickness of modern civilization. This is its desire to premise growth, to premise presence on this shrivelled pixelated individual, right who is incarcerated between, as you so eloquently put it, birthday and death day. Um, the world I come from um, suggests quite poetically that our lives transcend their durations, right that that we are cybernetic, algorithmic, poetic, diffractive rhizomatic, you know, <gasps> diasporic becomings. And we cannot be easily situated within the calendar, if you will. So my sister's name, for instance, is Yewande, which is E Wande. That is Ewa. That our grandmother has come back again. And I I don't want to <gasps> get into the story of and you might have heard of Babatunde and all of that. Our name I wouldn't I wouldn't name it as Reincarnation, maybe I'll call it intercarnation, right? Uh, I wouldn't uh, posit or um, suggest that Yoruba have a cosmic sense of reincarnation, like there's a cosmic wheel that is churning lives back into the material. Um, but there's a sense in which we are multiple selves, we're composite beings all the way down. So my sister is already my grandmother. Right. And, and, and babatundes everywhere are monstrous beings. So the sense of the individual is foreign, if you will.
3: And there's also a strong sense of community um, that has been dissolved. I, I think the reason the movie Black Panther was so popular in the United States was because you got to see what you only have inklings of and hints of from our own ancestral stories in the diaspora.
1: It was quite as popular back home in Africa. Well. Oh, I can tell you, <laughs> we dressed up. <laughs> we dressed up for that <laughs> stuff. We came out with our gillies and everything, right? It, it, because it was more than just representation. It was also a, a conversation between um, our diasporic um, siblings across the Atlantic. You know, it was a it was blackness reaching out and touching itself. <laughs> ah, <laughs> Almost organically. I love it. <laughs> uh, and, and that was a beautiful moment. And, and it speaks to the wealth, the richness. Uh Mbembe calls it um black reason, which isn't supposed to be some shriveled up rationality, but a sense of the Afro scene, I call it, that. Our lives and our worlds are populated
2: and much more than what mm-hmm. our modern prisms allow us to see. D- Dr. Komalafe, your, your work is, has truly challenged me to, to think differently. I've been trained as an engineer, and as an engineer, I've been trained to, to find answers to problems. But your work has kind of flipped it a little bit and given me an invitation to, to ask questions more to explore the possibility and the questions. And even one of the things that I'm I'm hearing your talk about in exploring even kind of this this interconnectedness, this cosmic we, if you will, you, you talk about this idea of the more than the human possibility in some of your work, the more than the human possibility. And could you help us to understand a little bit more about what that means and what is that idea more than the human possibility what does that look like? And, and how do we ask questions that invite us to be able to see and think differently that can be transformative and transformational in our lives? And I thank you for inviting the engine
1: and the engineer and the, and the notion of design and solutions and answers in here. We don't want to pathologize that. I think that is... Um, that is puerile and childish. Now, to to rule out the world in those terms, um, we need engineers. We need design. Um, the impasses of modern civilization are inviting us strongly to consider that design is not a human phenomenon, right? That that um, the engine, for instance, uh, whatever engine you know is 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 i'm just using the abstractual trope or notion of an engine is always a post human um phenomenon it's always a more than human phenomenon uh, i i've i've often shared with some others that um that when we speak about going to the moon and all the achievements of mankind right and and doing all the things we did the internet and stuff we often rule out out of our sociality of design, we rule out the influences, the instigations um, of the more than human world around us. Psychologists are telling us, for instance, today, that we have, that cognition is not as well packaged or as coherent uh, or not as brain-based as we think it is. Mm -hmm. That cognition is, is an algorithm that already ties in the external world, hence the notion of the external mind. So it's not just spiders that think with their webs, right? It is that humans are imbricated with and entangled with uh, ecologies, archetypes, ancestralities. So the furniture that I'm sitting in right now and the way it's affecting my posture, right, has sometimes, imperceptible effects on how I communicate that escapes language. So that design has always been infiltrated, exposed to ecologies, but our language doesn't know how to attend to that, you see. So we rule it out. And then we claim like Nebuchadnezzar of biblical fame that we built everything, (laughs) right? (laughs) But as that biblical narrative says, when he started to speak too much, I don't know if you guys go to church, well I don't but that biblical uh, account is Nebuchadnezzar is saying basically I built everything look at this empire and God turns him into an animal basically and I think there's a becoming animal there's a becoming other than human that is at work afoot right now that design has always been the work of microbes has always been the work of theologies, has always been the work of fruits and vegetables and furniture and colors and textures, that the world in world in itself, you know, brings all of these things together. It is not us doing it. We are doing it with, right? It's a cosmic we. And so that's the idea of the
2: post-human, I guess. What you were just introduced to us, you you place value on on design and the concept. And you also introduced to us this idea of, of language and how language for, for many of us is the framework where we understand our reality. We create narratives, we, we articulate, right? We communicate. Um, and language can be very freeing, uh, can be very comforting. But at the same time, <laughs> as you just introduced, la- language can also be very limiting. It can become something we've become dependent on. And that limiting dependency you discuss in some of your work is oftentimes a challenge for us. And so could you speak a little bit more about that in, in, in ways that help us to be able to see how language is, is one way, but also can be a limiting factor for us in another way?
1: It depends on how we put language to work. There is an epistemology that would think of language as um, a human right or something, you know, if you think of, of the world as a binary in terms of human exclusivity versus the world, then language is the barrier with which we endorse or exert our influence. Language is the way we, we claim um, exclusive rights to transcendence. It's the way we control and manipulate the world outside of expressibility. And in that sense, we've given language too much power. And I'm echoing the echo feminist um, and professor of um, feminist studies, uh, uh, my dear friend Karen Barad, um, that we've given language too much power, right? And what that does is that it creates this notion of representationalism, right, which has as one of its insidious effects, a coddling effect on the human. It basically makes us separate from the world. It treats us as exclusive and distant and dissociated from the world in its mattering. Um, But there's another way we can think of language, um, not as unlimited, but as creaturely, right? Uh, Language that is ecological. Or to say that words do not come from some sovereign and independent place that is unique to the human, it comes from ecology, so there's uh, so my people think of language as archival and memory as ecological. I said this to some controversial effect some time ago, that even if the Yoruba language were wiped out, um, and it's one of the list, Yoruba is listed as one of the language languages that is, um, you know, under the threat of extinction. That even if it were wiped out. Um, That is, all Yoruba speakers cease to exist in an instant. You know, Thanos snaps his fingers. That the language, it doesn't necessarily mean the language wouldn't survive. It doesn't necessarily mean the language wouldn't thrive in different ways. I use some speculative fabulation, you know, to talk about how the language would then become grain or morsels of some microbial matter that ants would carry into the jungle, you know, and store in some storehouse that is only unique to ants. And when nature, what I might rudely call nature, needs the language again, it would find its speakers, right? So one mode of engaging with language is to reduce it to syntax, to lexicon, to words, to phrases, to grammar, but I'm thinking about the more than grammatical characteristics of language, how the world gifts us with a how, or how the world gifts us with groaning and moaning, how languages sprout and take stability, right? It's more than human, it's extra human, right? And in this sense, I think we're being invited again and again, especially in these times of troubling cyclicity, to to seek out the modern human, the animist world around us, or we risk victory, the victory of arrival.
3: I think the gift that you give us, bio, is a shifting of lens. We've all dealt with a particular lens of what the world is, who we are, and where we come from. And what you say is that things opened up for you when you lost your coordinates your map your direction your your sense of the lens you had been given and that you no longer needed to be certain about the world or the road that you traveled since you arrive at the moment that you set out can you tell our listeners a little bit more about your awakening
1: <laughs> thank you dear auntie let me put it this way that my my father was my greatest cartographical project as a teenager. Um, I looked up to him. He was my best friend in many ways. Um, He was a model of masculinity that I looked up to. Um, He was tall and handsome and diplomatic, (laughs) right? And then he was just taken away. He died when I was young. And that was a very severe losing of my way. And, And suddenly... I started to, the world kind of became open and perverse at the same time, perverse at first, because he was like a sense of, he gave me a sense of theological closure, the sense in which a father, maybe a supreme deity or father might offer to a worshiper, a sense of closure. He was my end of time experience, right? And then suddenly for that whole narrative, for that eschatological um, narrative and story to be undone was quite upsetting for me and my family. And so I lost my way. But yes, my people do say that in order to find your way, you must lose it generously. Um, And that became for me um, like a coming home, You know, losing my father ironically became an invitation to find a new way of being at home with his loss, um, with his migrancy, um, and with the things that had been taken away from me, but me writ large, right? The Yoruba culture, um, what my commitments to my Christianized world denied me a sense of participation in. It became for me an invitation to become different. And in a sense, I still feel my father is with me in a sense that he couldn't have been if we were physically present. Um, maybe that's one way of answering it, <laughs> the question.
3: Yeah, it's an opening to uh, the gifts that you're now giving to all of us. Bio, in the United States, we're just emerging from the pandemic, maybe. (laughs) And for some reason, here in the United States, we process the death, the social devastation using whatever political lens is comfortable for us. By contrast, in your essay, I Coronavirus, mother monster, activist. You offer a playful thought experiment and you say, what if the virus were an immigrant, an alien visitation, an archetypal force that we've always known but don't know how to recognize? What is that archetypal force that you're referring to?
1: I think in that same essay, which is an essay hyphen book, hyphen monstrous chimeric thing um, that I don't know how to name yet, um, I also say that it could be this situation. I speculate that it might even be an answer to our prayers, to activist prayers, to prayers for the new, um, because the new is never convenient. Right? There, there is a sense in which the modern expects the new to come within the family way, you know, to come within the normal ways we expect things to roll out. Um, But the world is promiscuous. (laughs) and
3: Yes, it is.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And it doesn't settle easily along ideological lines. Using feminist new materialisms and Yoruba indigenous cosmologies, I felt invited to rethink the virus um, in more than epidemiological terms, right? Instead of thinking of the virus as a thing apart. There's something, this is something reductionistic that is convenient, but is also, also risky, right? It's like reducing climate change to climate emissions um, or reducing organizational responses to climate chaos, um, to um, CSR, you know, corporate social responsibility. And then basically asking the question, why isn't anything changing? Aren't we giving enough money to those activists? Aren't we pumping enough money to these legislations? Um, so there, there is a sense in which reductionism cuts a lot out, right? But I think in, of the world in terms of rhizomes, right? That, that the world is rhizomatic and, and chimeric and often, you know, disturbingly diasporic. And in this sense, the virus is more than just a thing, more than just this infinitesimally small thing that we have to get rid of, So I wanted to ask questions about what else could the virus be? Here in India, people raised an altar and worshiped the corona goddess, right? (laughs) Which to many scientific minds is utter rubbish, right? this is rubbish, this is primitive, this is not how we should face this problem. But that is a form of imperialism to insist that that the world is is objectively knowable. I'm not trying to rule out objectivity, but I think of objectivity in terms of accountability to what we are worlding together with the world, right? Um, So the story that this is an enemy from without and our work is to get rid of this enemy and get back to normal is echo metaphysically true, but it is not the entire story. It cannot possibly be the entire story. It only shows up in part. There are other stories we can tell about this, that this might just be an invitation for us to lose our way together. This might be a portal through the space-time fabric of modernity, This might be an invitation for us to prostrate ourselves before the more than human. And I don't know what this might look like, you know, in terms of a politics, but I have glimpses here and there um, of how people are responding to this moment in terms of the new questions this pandemic has raised up, you know, with unschooling, with how we shape work and the economy. And in that sense, Barbara, I really feel that this is a um, uh, this is a an activist of a phenomenon. This is a mother. This is a monster. Uh, just one quick question before I wrap this idea up is I asked some a, a group of people a, a question some time ago that think of any particular leader in the world, Obama, the Pope, I don't know, Desmond Tutu before he went uh, left us uh, behind. Think of any one leader that had the clout to send everyone back into their homes, you know, because of um, maybe greenhouse emissions, to say, everyone go to your homes for three months, no one go anywhere. What power, what person in the world had that power to do that? No human. Nobody. (laughs) (laughs) And yet this tiny thing just comes and steals into our lives and sends everyone back home. Mm -hmm. And for a brief moment, we saw animals on the street. Even if it was just for this uh, brief fugitive moment, we saw animals on the streets. We saw (laughs) uh, uh, planes parked, uh, you know, in in their hangars. And so it it just, I, I feel that we should be asking more questions other than just trying to rush into a solutionism. That reinstalls or reinscribes the problematic normal.
3: I agree. I, I think we 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 we're unwilling to ascribe power to anything except humans and their political and social organizations. There is other. There are other types of powers, and I'm not so certain that anything will ever go back to what we used to call normal.
1: No, I'm not sure either, Barbara. <laughs> and I I think we're just like the United States never returned to a pre 911 era, right? Oh, no. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> there, there's no pre 911 now. It, it reshaped the nation state. It executed or affected um, new anxieties and, uh, and new ways of thinking about the migrant or the stranger or borders. And I think the virus has, even if we eradicate it in a moment tomorrow, It has inexorably changed our lives. We cannot be the same anymore. There's no normal to return to.
3: No, and that may be the cosmic portal through which we save, (laughs) save what needs to be saved, and we shed what needs to be shed.
0: Is there life after doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience, an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage.
2: one of the things that as you were speaking about some of the changes that experiencing this pandemic has created, it, it seems like it also has invited many of us to look at this idea of power, this idea of of privilege, of this idea of human rights. And I wanted to see if you can kind of speak about, you know, your your thoughts and how your, your perspective and how that has changed or how you have experienced or what you have seen, um, individuals and how they have responded to the impact of the coronavirus and how people have become more aware of privilege, power and rights, human rights. So this
1: is what the introduction of a transversal um, brings to the normal. It upsets the established order and it invites new questions, phenomena to be noticed that were not designed into the blueprint that were not part of the map. Suddenly, the map is spilled open and design becomes geodesic, <laughs> right? Curves <laughs> come into a place where straight lines were considered before. Long before the pandemic, I read a paper. I, I cannot fully um, reference it at, the, at this moment, but the storyline of this paper was that hygiene is not as hygienic as we think it is, what, what I mean is that there's something about the rationality, the rectilinearity of modernity that wants to do away and sterilize the external world in order to create health for citizens. And that somehow this actually is counterproductive it's killing the microbes, the helpful microbes in our guts that give us health, right? Because it treats the individual, the citizen, as a complete whole, right? External to everything else. Um, and so, you know, I read this paper and that, the memory of that paper came up again when the pandemic started to take root. I don't, I don't have empirical um, evidence to back this speculation up. But in the favelas and in the slums in India, in Brazil, in the places that have been named dirty and need to be washed in Nigeria and parts of Africa, there was. it seems that there was a lot more resilience in those places than in the pristine, hygienic places of the world. Now, I don't know what that tells us, but I think it suggests that well-being is, we have to reframe what well-being means, that well-being is participatory. It, it cannot be a self-explanatory phenomenon. We need to reach out in order to be ourselves. I don't know if you, you understand what I'm saying with that. We can no longer afford the science of the individual. Of, of separation and enclosure, we are exposed. But Donald, my brother, your question wanted something else. Could you remind me of where I've tripped off into the universe
2: and gone somewhere else? Yeah, no, 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 this is good. This is really good because it, it's speaking, you're, you're getting to that, you know, it, it was more around the, how the experience, the global participation in this pandemic. What is your perspective on how has this brought awareness to uh, this idea of privilege, this idea of human rights, this idea of power—that's
1: where I was going with this idea of hygiene, right? And the categoricity of hygiene and its imbrication with well-being mean up, being upended by the virus. And suddenly, there are new spaces of power. There are spaces of the otherwise um, where power is practiced differently. You probably have heard of Fela Anikulapo Kuti, the father of Afrobeat. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Fela. Fela. Yes, Fela. Um, And and Fela mocking human rights. Everyone in Nigeria knows what he means when he calls human when he dismisses human rights. He's not trying to dismiss justice um, or to discountenance the need for that. Um, When he sang the song about human rights and singing, they won't dash me, human rights. He he was trying to say something that that there is a world that exceeds that Um, to um, anthropologists, it might be called an animist um, world, which was their way of demeaning this thing that did not rise to the level, to the glorious heights of white modernity, right? But he was trying to say that there is something, there is a world, so to speak, that exceeds this rectilinearity um, and its sense of entitlement um, which you might call human rights um, and in a sense you might you might even say that he was claiming animal rights and not the rights granted to the animal, by the state, by the nation state or by justice, but that there that there's a sense in which justice gets in the way of transformation that sometimes. Justice might be conceived as the software of the familiar, the way the nation state tames the citizen. And Fela's trope was about migrancy and becoming and movement and nomadicity, right, which the nation state tries to counteract by creating stable settlements. But I digress. When I think of power, I think of circles of convergence, right? I'm using the the metaphors, the figures used by French philosopher, Gilles Deleuze, right? It's just a place of containment, that power is a form of containment, right? Um, It's how the rhizome is put to work to reproduce images, you know, that reinscribe or sustain the recognizable. But there are moments when the world becomes illegible, unintelligible. That's how the new emerges. Our work then as creatures of the familiar is to stifle this difference, is to pathologize it, is to name it names and to squeeze it and to take out the life from it. But we do ourselves harm in that way. right? So Yoruba people speak about for elders, I think even Wallace has spoken about the slave ships coming and how Eshu, the trickster, traveled with the slave ships across the Atlantic, right? And I usually use that trope to invite people to notice the difference between power and ecstasy, that there's something that is more powerful than power, and that is ecstasy. That issue stole, uh, you know, s- snuck into those ships and traveled under the noses of those masters and slave drivers and became the Creolized world in the the Caribbean, in the Americas, and became different kinds of religions and practices, Santeria, Gayap, Candomble, you know, uh, Capoeira. And maybe my point here is this, that we do need power. We cannot dismiss, um, I'm not of, I think none of those positions are sustainable, Pro mask, anti mask, uh, as a non American, I usually look at these conversations with some, with a chuckling in my mouth, right? It, it, there is a sense in which we need power. We need the stability. But there is the warning of the trickster that if you get yourself too attached to that place of convergence, you lose, you become the jail cell, you become the prison, and you lose sight of the risks of being victorious, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it's in one sense, you can think of it as a politics of, recog- uh, of recognition, and think of it as a politics of identity politics, mm-hmm. of situating ourselves in the nation state, of getting rid of the anti maxes uh, of vaxes, or something like that. Um, but on the other hand, we are being invited to notice the trouble with winning the war, right? And that we need a different politics that might veer close to what I sometimes call fugitivity. That if we do not leave the plantation, if we do not learn to start exiling ourselves from the plantation, we will reproduce the plantation.
3: Wow, that's a powerful statement. It certainly is. I'm thinking about what you were talking about with regard to power. And hygiene, and the power to declare something dirty and in need of cleansing. Um, and, and it goes right into the religion, the ways in which we, Christianity was spread throughout the world. How is it that Jesus is usually depicted in white flowing robes when there were no washing machines, no Clorox, no bleach? He was walking, there were no limousines. There is no way in the world that Jesus could have been walking in presence on the earth in pure, white, clean, hygienic clothing, not in the Middle East, in the dust storms, and among people who had no access to what we modern folk call hygiene. And so there's a way in which you say power co-ops. It's a way of Making Jesus smaller and less accessible and confining the spirituality. Mm. Mm. Those white robes bother me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> if that is not a wonderful book title, I don't know what is, right? Those white robes bother me too. <laughs> I and I grew up just hanging on to the the threads of that white robe, you know, the search for purity, the, serf, the search for transcendence, the Baldorian myth that eventually, in the by and by, we can arrive at some utopian place. Um, and our work, the work of decoloniality, is to return to an original or to restore an original image. It, it lends itself quite remarkably to the imperial, to the colonial, to the master. Right. Um, And I like dirty, dirty messiahs and not messiahs that are made up in the figures of the human, but when the messiah or the messianic becomes this ecological orchestration of the next, right? The applause of plant and food and music and dance and colors and, and things that escape design to the chagrin of the engineer, (laughs) right? That we're not going to design ourselves out of this. And there is no Messiah at the end of time who's going to redeem us from the messiness of things because we are the messiness of things exploring itself in an endless teenage fascination with with the next.
3: Yes, and our myths are are nice, and our myths are entertaining, but we don't know what the world is or will be like. Not really. You talk a lot about post-activism, and for Americans, particularly um, BIPOC people, people of color, uh, we can't think toward a post-activism because we never finished the original. <laughs> There's no... <laughs> there, we didn't get there. <laughs> we thought we did, but what we realized too late was that there was no goal. There was no finish line, that everything is cyclical, including the poison of Racism. And so you say post-activism is when we have come to the end of the rope, to the very end of the world, and there are no more words. Is there action, though? If there are no more words, how do we get beyond the troubles of trying to be neighbors?
1: I think this is where Black Panther comes in again. Yeah. The king Hello, of Wakanda. I, I invite you in again. That there is something to be learned about the post-colonial experiences of Africans in their search for independence. That is not talked about enough. Of course, Chinua Achebe and Chimamanda Adichie and Wale Shuenka and Ungugi thiongo and these African writers have always been, have long been part of a conversation between the African diasporic communities and and the continent. Um, But I think we need it even more desperately now, right? And and the part of the conversation I'm speaking about is learning from the experiences of Africans the, the underbelly of winning the war against our colonial masters. Like the fights from the 60s to the 70s and even from the 19th century in Algeria, right, that swept through the continent um, all the way to the 70s, chasing away the British colonialists, um, bringing down the Union Jack. We defeated them, is what I'm trying to say. We we chased them away. We won back our independence. But when they left, we suddenly realized that we were no longer the same, right? we had changed in the very heat of the conflagration of our fighting. We had become in defeating the enemy, we had taken up the shape of the enemy because now we had flags and systems of government and imperatives that meant we needed to connect back with those people who were chased away in order to thrive in the new environment. in winning the game, um, we became the game, and that is the that is the heart, if I could say, the storytelling, the speculation of post-activism. That what if in in winning the war we become the enemy? What if the ways we respond to the crisis is part of the crisis? What do we do when healing becomes iatrogenic? And I, the term iatrogenic, of course, is the medical term for um, the scenario where the attempt to heal uh, reinscribes a sickness, right? The medicine becomes sick. In that moment, when healing becomes sick itself, you need a break. When the cycle becomes toxic, you need interruption. You need a fault line. You need an earthquake. You need a seismic shift, and this is where the trickster bursts in into the bubble. This is where we need, you know, Hathor, the goddess of destruction. This is where Ishu um, bursts into the slave ship and creolizes, and uh, the world. This is where the virus becomes more than just an epidemiological figure. So that's what post-activism is, is the creolization of continuity, right? It is marking the territory of discontinuity. It is saying, oh, I don't think we can continue to do what we've always been doing um, because that doesn't seem to be productive, right? Lauren Berland called this cruel optimism, right? When our desires, um, for something um, actually stands in the way of our flourishing. That is the oh point my. of post-activism. So it's not like after activism, we're done <laughs> with activism. This is the new thing now and y'all are dinosaurs. You know, it's it's not to say that this is some new spiritual trope. And if everyone gets on board this ship, we'll arrive, you know, in the by and by in some mystical future. No, it is to say... There are different ethnographies of responsivity, of responsibility that we're being invited into that may not be available for conversations around solutions, but that we need to embark upon if we are to probably thrive. And this might look like a becoming monstrous. This might look like a becoming child. This might look like a becoming animal, right? Because at some point... um, Healing itself is indebted to stability. But when the world withdraws this endorsement of stability, we have to become with the world. Or to paraphrase Chinua Achebe um, responding to Archimedes, you know, who says, give me a place to stand and I shall move the world. And Chinua Achebe responds, but there is no place to stand. We are mm. off the world and we must move with it. Post-activism is an invitation to movement, to exile, to making sanctuary, to, f- to framing new therapeutic alliances with the world that is bigger than the individual or our images of victory.
3: I'm attuned with that because during a visit to uh, Eldorette, um, Kenya, um, some of the children started calling me Mazungu which is uh, means white woman. And my hair was properly all braided down and everything, and I'm, I'm as black as you are. And I'm like, what are you doing? And why are you calling me white woman? I really got an attitude about it. And one of them said to me, but you talk like a white woman. You act like a white woman. You desire the things that white women desire. I was in shock. And since that point, I have been working with how much my battle during the civil rights movement internalized something in me that changed me and made me take on that which I was fighting. So what you've just shared with us, Bio, sounds like a path forward for a new generation in Black Lives Matter the old generation of the civil rights movement, a path forward that doesn't require that we continue to battle. Perhaps we can ultimately find sanctuary.
2: And piggybacking on Barbara's story, and and as you're dealing with this idea of post activism, it it sounds like, and and I want you to maybe, this is a question, is, is post activism also a questioning of one's self? Is it is it is it also like a, a taking an inventory or a an evaluation, self-evaluation or or taking self-responsibility, even looking at Barbara's story in our participation of what we're intending to be an activist against, the external activism? Is it is it taking inventory of our contribution or our our own consumerism and our own habits and our own? selfishness. Yeah, right. So I, I want to just ask is 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 post-activism another way of really looking at it is not just an activist against some social concern, but is there some inner reflection that is part of how you define post-activism?
1: So you can think of post-activism as a form of sensitization. Like we're desensitized by our exposure to the environment, to politics, to protest to desires that are not ours. We are activated, moved, instigated, oriented, swayed by desires that are not our own because we move and act within community. And that's a beautiful thing. We act as an extra hyper-organism, but there's also a risk of that because it, it in terms of that kind of assemblage thinking, um, we run the risk of um, becoming desensitized to movement um, and and modernity, uh, uh, you know exerts that kind of power. It it cradles it cradles desire and, and traps it so that even our, our desire for and you know this is what Achille Mbembe talks about the technologies of racialization have moved even beyond the skin to how we engage with the internet, right? So it's not just at the level of the skin. We're also talking about how capitalism. Controls how we desire things, how we want things, the thoughts that we have about the future, you know, are just are matters of algorithms that exceed our individual desires or tastes. Um, so that's one thing to say. Um, I think of post-activism as, in a sense, a taking inventory. Yeah, it 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 is a sense in which we come to a place where we're suddenly. Deterritorialized. We are suddenly made aware of things that were part of our assemblage, but were s- s- largely invisible, right? And we didn't notice them before because, well, we're not available for that. But now something bursts through, like the virus came into India and India mothers started to ask questions like, what's the idea about school again, <laughs> right? Or why do we go to work because suddenly people are working at home and there was a new possibility and the question about work and going to work became possible, right? So in that sense it's a taking inventory. But I wanna really situate this and emphasize that post activism is a disability. It is not like a place of new capacities and we're taking up stuff and this is a new quiver and an uh, arrow in our quiver of arrows, right? It is a place of undoing of radical failure that is yet generative. So I call it generative incapacitation. It is like sprouting, Donald. It's like waking up in the morning tomorrow and you sprouted three legs, right? And you cannot explain it. So you cannot go to work because you now have these other legs that you don't know how to fit into (laughs) your jeans or something, your engineer's clothes. And your work, you suddenly become embarrassed with that and you try to hide it you know, get back into the normal, right? Post-activism is convening community around this monstrous tentacle, right? It's like, what do we do about these other legs, right? This disability, it's convening community around this crack, right? That's why post-activism is always a matter of rupture and cracks. It is generative incapacitation. And I think black joy The kinds of futures we look forward to will not come at the tail end of our genius. It will come at the place where we're broken open by a world that exceeds us.
3: What a wonderful way to end this interview. Is there something forthcoming that you're doing that you'd like to share with the audience so they can participate or be part of it?
1: Nothing comes to mind. Um, I just feel the my mother's hospitality. Like, yeah, let's just come to the house. I may not present a menu now before you, or a recipe, but there's always food to eat. And there's always a lot to go around. So I, I just offer an African mother's, um, a black mother's hospitality to say, come, there's food. Let's just eat together. We'll find each other somehow.
3: Thank you, Dr. Komalafe, for sharing this hour with us. Thanks for listening. We'd like to leave you with the reflection from this episode. I don't know, Dunny, the thing about um, the conversation with Bio Komalafe is that he is such an intellectual and he sees things from a perspective that I've never considered. I mean, just to take for an example, he's talking about losing your way generously, finding a new way of being at home in the world. I mean, I've talked about viewing the world differently, but I've never thought about, you know, losing your way, getting out of your box, getting out of the space you created for yourself that it's too tight, doesn't fit anymore. Losing your way. What a wonderful idea.
2: The invitation that he affords all of us is an invitation to see differently. And you're correct, this concept of not finding your way, but finding yourself through losing your way is actually very counterintuitive and countercultural. I think part of our conversation with him was also about how there's insight found in the questions.
3: Oh, yes. It
2: causes me to want to reflect on how I approach solving problems. You know, we talked about me being an engineer, how I, Dr. B, I'm always trying to solve a problem. And <laughs> he had an interesting take on that and how design, he talked about engine and design and the engineer and how design is not a human phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And that design has an impact, um, that there's something in design, in the engine, as he called it, that is at work. There's an other than human work and so there was an invitation there to even see differently to have a different perspective on what's our surroundings and and how the the interactions with that
3: yeah he kind of pierces our little scientific hubris by saying you know the world is not objectively knowable Mm -hmm. we think it is and we have our little formulations but what if everything is mystery Mm -hmm. how do we wake up in the morning, and begin a day that is going to be a hundred percent mystery. Hmm. Live into that as part of a community who can't plan ahead, who don't know what's going to happen, but who trust and by faith can negotiate the space. Well, wow. I'm just wondering are you willing to lose your way generously? Nobody wants to get lost without a map or a GPS, but perhaps that's the only way to be found.